Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. Now, I don't know about you, Sarah, but given our family's COVID quarantine in December, I have become very bored of these four walls. And rather than staying in this January, I'm pretty determined to make up for lost time. And socialising is firmly back on my agenda. Oh, that sounds fun. Unfortunately, I'm the total opposite. So I'm really cautious. I look after my dad, so I don't want to miss out on any visits to him. Add to that, I'm trying to be healthier. And that means the pub's out. So I'm basically hardly leaving the house. I always say I'm probably qualify as a hermit at this point. That's what I expected most people to do. Just stay in and uh, pull up the drawbridge in a way. And I thought my local would be completely deserted last weekend, but it certainly wasn't the case. You could hardly find a seat anywhere and it was rammed at the bar. Maybe it was my particular corner of Bristol. Yeah, key part of Bristol. So we'll have to see what the whole of the month brings, especially now that Plan B is being dropped. But certainly over December and in the early days of January, staying in was the new going out. And it's been terrible news for the hospitality industry. So it was already struggling with things like cancellations and staff shortages. And so that's what we're focusing on today in an episode we're calling Glass Half Empty for Hospitality. Yes, to help lift the lid on the industry, we'll be talking to David Burgess, who runs the Fugitive Motel Bar and Kitchen in London's Bethnal Green, about just what it's been like trading over the last few months, particularly since Omicron hit, and the steps they're taking to try and keep orders coming in during the pandemic. Great to have you with us, David. Hi, Susanna. Great to be here. And I um, happily give you a lowdown of what it's like being in the business. We're really looking forward to talking to you later in the show, David, when we'll also hear from Andrew Lund Yates, who runs the Model Village in Borton on the Water in the Cotswolds, along with a hotel and cafe. He's been working towards opening a pub at the attraction, which definitely faces its fair share of challenges at the moment. Hi, Susanna. Thank you for uh, inviting me along. Yeah, look forward to uh, catching up with you and uh, giving you a viewpoint from the lovely Cotswolds. Well, we'll hear plenty more from Andrew later in the show. And if his surname sounds slightly familiar, it's because he's the father of Sophie Lund-Yates, who hasn't followed her dad into the model village business. In fact, she's our senior equity analyst at HL. Yeah, when we started talking about focusing on this sector and realised Sophie's dad was in the business too, he just had to come on. And of course, we'll be talking to Sophie about some well-known hospitality companies and just how they've been faring over a very difficult few months or really almost two years. Hi, Sophie. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Dad. Um, Nice to have you with us. I certainly never had this down as a likely occurrence, but apart from grilling Dad a bit later on, I'll be chatting about some of the biggest listed names in the industry and and how they're getting on, because as you said, it's certainly not pretty out there at the moment. Thanks, Sophie. And I look forward to speaking to you both later. Plus, Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis, has been speaking to Ben Whitmore, who's Head of Strategy for Value Equities at Jupiter Asset Management. And they'll be talking about the challenges for hospitality. And of course, we'll have our quiz. So Susanna's been working on a particularly literal pub quiz in that it's a quiz about pubs. So I'm hoping the fact that I can barely remember what the inside of a pub looks like doesn't mean I'm out for a duck again this time around. Yes, if you can't get to the pub quiz, Sarah, I can bring the pub quiz to you again. But before we get into why it's been such a wild ride of late for some in the hospitality industry, let's talk about a roller coaster of a different kind, which was really concentrating minds this time last year. We have become pretty used to extreme highs and lows, but we were approaching another level in January 2021 when the meme stock frenzy erupted. 
intense interest was sparked in the shares of some companies like GameStop after they were among the firms targeted by an army of retail investors last January in a bid to create big losses for short sellers. Now, the FOMO effect has kept a couple of meme stocks in the top 10 of net buys on our platform for 10 out of the 12 months over the past year. Although this is by the number of trades rather than by volume, so reflects more smaller purchases. Yes, the mean stock phenomenon is just not going anywhere just yet. But a lot of this has less to do with the stocks and more to do with the investors themselves, hasn't it? Yes, trading is on vogue as a form of entertainment among younger investors and an increasing number have been getting investment ideas from posts on social media platforms where speculation about meme stocks has kept swirling. Now, the city watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority, has been reminding investors about the risks of buying stocks in such a volatile environment. Yes, there are some real risks associated with the rise of meme stocks. But there's a concurrent trend, which is actually far more positive, because at the same time, we've seen the average age of people investing for the first time falling. And that's thanks to a shift to digital trading, which is really opening up the financial markets to new retail investors. And that's a really encouraging trend. Yes, it is. And over the past year, we have urged investors not to chase the hot stocks, but to pursue a well-thought-out, longer-term investment strategy, specifically diversifying their holdings. Now, that has led to significant success in helping clients make changes to improve their financial resilience, with around a third of clients who joined us in 2017 as a share trader now holding funds. There really are some positive trends and it's great to see a new generation of investors emerge. So the work we're doing to help clients to make these informed investment decisions, that's going to continue. So it's something we'll definitely revisit in the coming months. But for now, let's get back to hospitality. So Susanna, despite the commitment to the pub in your corner of Bristol, we've come through some incredibly difficult months. Even though pubs and restaurants stayed open as Omicron spread, an awful lot of people just decided not to risk it. Yes, we've been delving into statistics from the Office for National Statistics, which show us that in the week ending the 20th of December, the number of people eating in restaurants fell to just 88% of the level seen in the equivalent week two years ago before the pandemic hit, of course. Now, that was the lowest this measure has been since May last year when pubs and restaurants were reopened. And the same report showed that almost half of accommodation and food services firms had seen an increase in cancellations. And that was a particularly harsh blow, given that we were in the middle of the Christmas party season, which is enormously important to these businesses. So trade really suffered. Now, this wasn't like when entire swathes of the industry were closed in lockdown. They were still ostensibly open, so there wasn't the same level of government support. Now, in December, the government did announce grant funding for affected businesses, but with a maximum grant of £6,000, it was a drop in the ocean for many of those businesses affected. Yes, and another report from the Office for National Statistics found that almost two-thirds of accommodation and food services business were actually facing a drop in turnover. And of course, it wasn't just customers who were affected, so staff were also laid low. And a separate report by the ONS found that the Christmas party season saw more staff off sick than the so-called pandemic last summer. And this was really impossible for some businesses to sort of just carry on as normal. And of course, this was adding insult to injury because so many hospitality firms were already struggling after so many challenges since the start of the pandemic. So at this stage, 54% of firms in the accommodation and food services industry said they'd less than three months of cash reserved left to keep them going. 
And of course, when hospitality suffers, their suppliers suffer too. And so while drinks companies have benefited from lots of enthusiasm about drinking at home, and that, of course, sent sales for booze for home consumption up almost a fifth, that just is nowhere near enough to make up for the loss in pub sales. And it could take around five years for drinks sales to recover. So an awful lot depends on the hospitality industry thriving. Yes, it really does. So at this point, we should bring in David Burgess, who runs the Fugitive Motel in Bethnal Green, and Andrew Lundiates, who, as we've been hearing, runs a model village and full-sized hotel and restaurant in Borton on the Water. So, David, if I can start with you, just how has it been the last few months? Up and down, and the downs have been pretty low. Best characterised in the run-up to Christmas when we had 70% of our Christmas bookings cancelled after the first week of December. That very much coincided with Professor Chris Whitty telling people to prioritise which social interactions they want to be having over the festive period. So, of course... Everyone wants to be seeing their family for Christmas Day. So we interpreted it certainly as a direct message of deprioritise casual social interactions at bars and restaurants. So, um, you know, the direct result of that really did tell on our bottom line. I mean, obviously, sort of staying open has got to be a positive in lots of ways. But did it make it easier to plan than when, you know, everything was kind of shut down earlier in the pandemic? Or is it actually more difficult to plan with all these sort of last minute cancellations? That's a really good question. Being told that we can stay open but without any financial support is difficult. There's so many unseen knock-on implications of that. Is there the work for your salaried employees, suppliers? There's a lot that does make it difficult to plan when you're allowed to stay open. However, obviously, having some money coming into the business is welcome. But winding the clock back to the beginning of the pandemic, we as a business in East London pivoted very quickly into takeaway drinks deliveries and leveraging third-party food takeaway platforms as well, which we've continued to do. Neither is an ideal scenario. The best thing I can say that we've done as an independent business in East London is just roll our sleeves up and make sure that we have the cash flow at the end of the month to move through the pandemic. You mentioned some of the ways you adapted at the start of the pandemic. Have those sorts of things continued or have they evolved as time's gone on? They have continued and evolved. Where possible, we've tried to integrate them into our business-as-usual operation. So the the takeaway drinks deliveries, we still have some guests and residents that live near us that will continue to do um, takeaway drinks deliveries for them. Um, And that's then evolved into some corporate customers. We now deliver craft beer kegs into a couple of Shoreditch office blocks that have craft beer taps in their offices. So it's obviously, of course, not at the level that it was back at the beginning of the pandemic, but the takeaway food platforms, the corporate drinks and the um, takeaway drinks for residents nearby is something that we've all continued with, yeah. I want to bring in Andrew at this point. Andrew, you run a hotel and restaurant as part of the model village, but of course it's in a much more rural location compared to David's business. So how does it compare the experience uh, during the pandemic and in particular over the past few months? Exactly. We've got a very different offer to David and our primary business at the moment is the Model Village, which is a very popular tourist attraction that has suffered. And in fact, in the last four months since the end of the school holidays, really, our business numbers are down on pre-pandemic numbers and took a, a further hit when everybody was obviously advised to choose their social mixing before Christmas. And our numbers over Christmas were significantly down, reflecting perhaps the fact that People weren't travelling to stay away at Christmas. So it's, it's been tricky. The hotel side of things, we've only been trading 
accommodation for the last two, three years. Um, our pub and restaurant was shut by previous owners 10 years ago and we're just investing heavily in getting that reopened now. We have put plans on hold because of the pandemic, um, but we see now's a, a brilliant time to be um, getting things up and running again. So our numbers, tourist-wise, down. Bed and breakfast-wise, we haven't seen any international tourists. We're just starting to see that increase now, bookings for this year. It's been a tough, tough two years. Certainly sounds it. And uh, what about all your plans to open the pub? Have they been delayed because of all this? Originally, when we, we took the business over three years ago, we had planned to start work on the bar and restaurant two years ago. But we had, thankfully, taken a decision the previous summer not to do that. Had we gone ahead with those plans, we'd have opened on the 10th of March in time for the now infamous Cheltenham Gold Cup week and then shut two weeks later because of the pandemic. So we've pushed ahead now and we'll be opening in the next three or four weeks. Now we have seen a lot of businesses go to the wall during the pandemic. What do you think makes the difference between those who've stopped trading and those who've managed to continue? David's probably highlighted the flexibility and the the creativity that is rife within the hospitality industry. And I think the businesses that have stepped up and diversified their offer are going to fly because they've adapted, they're maintaining those adaptations. When we were planning our, our offer here, we've built in some of the opportunities that people have had to switch to in terms of takeaway and things like that. So when we're designing kitchens and um, that sort of thing. We've ha- we've done it with half a mind that we may have to go back to some other form of trading in the future. Overall, I think a lot of mid-range dining experiences, those are the kind of businesses that haven't been able to adapt and have disappeared from the high street. It's probably sifted the good from the bad and we will have a better hospitality offer generally for the general public, I think. It's a difficult thing to say that, but I I do completely agree. We talk a lot about making Fugitive Motel a real destination that has a number of reasons of why people would come out down to a bar. What experience can you have out in a pub or bar that you can't have at home? You can do so much at home now, and obviously everyone's become so accustomed. People's behaviours have changed in terms of how they they drink more at home, etc. We have some fairly unique bar games at Fugitive Motel that fits within the US West Coast inspiration of the place a 14 foot shuffleboard table that's booked up all the way into the spring we have a cornhole set which is quite a quirky game out in our yard area of course it's being a good operator and making sure all the numbers stack up but we see one of the drivers of that is giving people a reason to come out so you've got to be innovative but i imagine recruitment is also a bit of a headache with the labor market so tight what's that been like david i've heard the term a war for talent that's absolutely accurate the talent pool within hospitality has reduced certainly in london so it's making sure that as an employer and as a company we try as hard as we can to go above and beyond to give people a reason to want to work for us our employee of the month initiative we really work hard on things like that to make sure that people know that as an independent business we're trying to look after them and that's why they'd want to come and work for us we're struggling the same as london maybe in different proportions but recruitment is very very tricky we've all set our stall out to make sure that we've got a an environment as you say david that people want to come and work for us so we're under a major recruiting drive now to staff their hotel and restaurant fully we've always paid above the living wage because we wanted people to be fully recognized for the hard work they have to do in hospitality but we're now looking at how we marshal people's time at work we're limiting the number of hours chefs and people like that look at hospitality as a 50 60 70 hour a week usually well we're restricting that to 40 45 hours per week We're giving them the opportunity to access 
counselling and mental health support outside of the workplace. We'll fund that. And making sure that everyone's got an even playing field. So things like uh, gratuities equally split right across the business, whether you're in the kiosk in the model village or you're cleaning the rooms or you're you know running the kitchen. Everybody gets an equal share. And it's, it's making people feel valued as a part of the team. They're members of our family, they're members of our team and we, we run it very much as a family. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking to us about all the challenges, but also the opportunities and, and some of the positive stories as well on hospitality through the gloom. Uh, but before you go, Andrew, let me bring in Sophie, our senior equity analyst. Sophie, have you got any particular question you'd like to put to your dad? I can't lie to our listeners. You aren't the most patient person in the entire world, but what has been the most frustrating thing you've had to deal with over the last couple of years work-wise because obviously I've, I've kind of been watching it from from the sidelines and it's just been thing after thing. So from the initial outset of this whole thing our insurers were the biggest headache because although we had business interruption insurance they refused to pay and that all went through to court. That affected a huge number of businesses and I think Susanna you mentioned there's so many hospitality businesses particularly have gone out of business. I think the support we've had from government we wouldn't have survived without that. The other frustration particularly from a hospitality point of view is we seemed to bear the brunt of guests, customers, frustrations, fears, anxieties. We saw a big change in behaviour People were far more demanding in terms of their expectation of the service we were able to deliver. We didn't change our service delivery. It's always been, you know, customers at the heart of what we do. I have at times wondered if, A, there's anything you would have done differently with the benefit of hindsight, and B, if you would actually take it all on again, if you had your time again. I don't think we'd change anything. I think, would I do it again? Uh, Yeah, in a heartbeat. Well, thank you so much, Sophie and Andrew and David. Really great to to talk about all of the challenges facing hospitality. It's great to hear that positivity, but certainly it seems as though us, we, the customers, do have to be a bit kinder uh, overall. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me on the call. Uh, It's been great to catch up, and we are looking forward to welcoming everybody back in a normal, normal life. Great to be here, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, as Andrew said earlier, it will be a more refined hospitality sector that comes out the end of the pandemic. But there's certainly going to be some great places to welcome people to come out and eat and drink in the near future. So the question is whether the positivity we heard from David and Andrew was going to be seen more broadly. And we've been talking here about the hospitality sector, but there are also knock on effects for brewers in particular. And one of the interesting things is that stocks in companies involved in brewing and the drinks industry in general have been making up a bigger part of our clients' portfolios over time. But there are still plenty of challenges facing brewery companies, aren't there, Sophie? Hi, Sarah. Yes, that's um, putting it mildly, really. Because as you've said, it's not just businesses that try and sell booze that are beholden to hospitality getting back to normal. I do think that brewers are kind of the forgotten victims because they're that extra layer beyond the headlines. So companies that make our favourite tipples face particular issues when sales volumes drop. And that is because they have very high operational gearing. And all that means is that they have very high fixed costs. So when factories are working at full pelt, it means that once initial costs are covered, each extra bottle off that production line contributes massively to profit. But the problem with that is that it means the opposite is true. So when production slows down, it has really serious effects on margins and that's what we saw with brewing giant AB InBev which is by no means the only one that faced issues but that makes brands including Corona and Stella 
So we saw in 2020 that operating profit fell 22.6%. Those profits aren't expecting to fully recover until at least 2023, according to, to analyst estimates. To its credit, AB InBev did report revenue in the third quarter of $14.3 billion, which reflected almost 8% organic growth. So it's definitely on the right footing. But what I would say for me personally, the biggest issue going forward is debt. So less of a sales problem, more of a debt problem. So at the last count, Debt was 4.4 times cash profits, which is far too high in in, in my view. And the main priority from here is going to be getting that down. Um, And that's why there was no interim dividend. And ultimately, you know, I do think that AB and Bev's strong brands, you know, they're going to hold it in in good enough stead. Um, But another slowdown would really not go down very well. And I mean that operationally and, and the market's reaction. Now, there's also, Sophie, been quite a lot of excitement among parts of the drinks industry about the UK-India trade talks, which have whiskey firmly on the table because India is such a potentially lucrative market as whiskey is a very popular drink in the country. And if a deal is reached, it could see tariffs on Scotch whiskey imported into India drop from 150% to 30 or even 25%. And they UK government estimates that if a deal is reached, it could grow Scotch whisky exports to India by a billion pounds over five years. Now, if, of course, is a big word here, given that there are so many interests to satisfy, but drinks companies are eyeing up overseas markets, aren't they? There's big growth potential. They certainly are. Drinks giant Diageo is the one that, that springs to mind here. Um, that makes the likes of Johnny Walker whiskey, as well as um, moving away from whiskey, it does Guinness and Gordon's, to name just a couple. But back to whiskey in, in particular, it's a really great industry to be in. It takes a huge amount of upfront investment and time for a newcomer to compete. You know, good whiskey needs to be aged, so a new competitor would need to be comfortable waiting for their investment to pay off, unlike other, other alcohol. Alternatively, they could buy existing distilleries and spend heavily on marketing, but scaling up is really difficult and expensive. So strong brands in the whiskey market and you know these huge barriers to entry mean that it equates to attractive margins in, in normal times. As you were saying, the wider whisky industry and Diageo in particular are acutely aware of growing opportunities in less developed economies. So Diageo has a good but smaller position in India and China and stands to benefit as the kind of the average wealth of of these nations grows. When that happens, customers will then ultimately, hopefully, shimmy up the value chain where more premium whiskies are waiting for them on their on their local supermarket shelves. So the opportunity is huge, which is why Diageo is actually splashed out big time on turning an Edinburgh department store into a Johnny Walker whiskey emporium. I mean, the idea is certainly a bold one um, and highlights the breadth of available market in management's opinion. I would like a bit of a, uh, a longer run to fully assess if, if that can be classed as a great success story or, or an expensive misfire. But um, certainly that was an interesting one to read in, in the company announcements. I mean, the whiskey industry is a really interesting one. I've been reading that, you know, when you start your whiskey distillery, the thing to do is to put out a gin first so because you can make money on that quick and then you're going to grow your whiskey over the next 30 years. But uh, so we never know. There could be a load more whiskey just waiting in the wings. So looking sort of back to the hospitality industry and pubs in particular. So what do you think is the outlook for them, particularly now we're getting a much higher inflationary environment? So this is a really big question. I don't need to state the obvious. You know, it's not a great time to own a pub chain. And we recently heard from Mitchells and Butlers, which owns various chains. So they, that includes All Bar One, Harvester, Browns, um, Miller and Carter. Um, so its brands span a decent breadth of the value chain, but it doesn't cover premium. Um, so more of that kind of mid to lower end of the value chain. I personally think this actually puts it in quite a good position, potentially, if we're looking at in- inflation specifically, because 
when people feel like their they don't just feel like their their monthly income simply isn't stretching as far they might decide to rein in spending which means you know they're going to maybe not go to as fancy a place to to eat out but at the same time if discretionary spending does take a beating above and beyond what we're expecting then that will still hurt the chain. You could see that nearly all eating out is rubbed off the to-do list. But for Mitchell and Butler's looking at their most recent trading, it was picking up towards the end of last year. But Omicron, unsurprisingly, put a sharp halt on progress. And in the most trading weeks that we have data for, like-for-like sales were down over 10%. It's also dealing with the pitfalls of having a large casual workforce. That means that wage increases are going to see spending rack up more so than it might do for other businesses, because if they're paying the minimum wage, um, and then that's, you know, we've seen huge increases in that coming that's going to hurt so all in it's not the prettiest picture but i would say that there are quite a few things to like the big one is that it owns rather than rents over 80 percent of its premises which is a serious asset um, and it means it has a, a great deal more flexibility than, than most of its peers we've also seen that trading when it is going is going well um, so in theory i would be expecting the group to to weather this latest round of subdued trading and then pick up at a reasonable pace as people re-enter pubs but of course and especially at the moment that is far from guaranteed yeah absolutely thanks sophie it's going to be really interesting to see what's going to happen to these companies as, as the months go on and we get sort of what the next round of covid holds in store for the moment i'd like to bring in emma wall who's our head of investment research and analysis here at Hargreaves lansdowne and she's been speaking to ben whitmore head of strategy for value equities at jupiter asset management hi ben emma hello there so we're here today to talk about hospitality and leisure and the pub industry in particular, which I know you have excellent insight into, not just because you are an investment specialist, but because I believe you come from a line of publicans. Your father was a publican, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. I grew up delivering beer and going into pubs, obviously way before I was 18 years old, and grew up among pubs, publicans, beer, real ale, all my life really. And it's been a difficult couple of years, to say the least, for the sector, hasn't it? It's been a very difficult period. But actually, if you go back a bit further, the number of pubs in the UK has been declining really quite sharply. So since 2000, up until just before the pandemic, the number of pubs in the UK fell by 22%, down from 60,000 to about 47,000. And the data hasn't been collected for the pandemic period yet, but most pub operators and people in the industry think that's fallen another 10%. So in just over 20 years, probably we've lost about a third of our pubs. How much of that, as you say, is down to the pandemic and the kind of unique financial difficulties that that has placed on pub owners and landlords? And how much of that is to do with underlying structural changes to the industry? There are big underlying structural changes taking place. If you think about things that have happened in the last 15 to 20 years that have changed things, those would be things like the smoking ban. People are drinking less alcohol. More tax is placed on pubs. And then also lifestyles are changing. So pubs, which used to be very drink-only, male-only, people don't want that anymore. They want pubs that everyone feels comfortable going into, And predominantly, they want to eat there as well. So you've had all those changes taking place. And then the pandemic has just been absolutely brutal on any pub that isn't sufficiently well financed or maybe is suffering on the back of those trends already. 
And are there headwinds also provided by changes in the real estate market? I mean, I know it's a cliche, but I feel like as I walk around any city, you see pubs that have become luxury one-bed apartments. That has been happening, but it's quite mixed across cities. So the number of pubs hasn't really declined that much in London. And the southwest has the highest number of pubs per population. It is a mixed picture, but the one definite trend that has been much, much steeper than that decline has been any small pub, and we can all remember these, that's on the corner of a high street that was drink-led only, where predominantly men would go in and stand at the bar and chat about their day. Those have declined very, very rapidly over the last 30 years, and, and the pandemic has put a lot of those have finally finished now. Now, of course, there are lots of community benefits to somewhere that people can go and congregate. Um, We've definitely felt that as communities over the last couple of years, that loss. But thinking from an investment point of view, because ultimately that's what this podcast is about, are there any reasons to remain optimistic about the sector or do you think it is in structural decline? Companies who own pubs or pubs themselves, the ones that have flourished are the ones that have adapted This is a parallel for all businesses. If you stand still and don't change your offer, don't update your products, and society changes about you, you're going to wither. And so within the sector, the pub companies that have flourished are the ones that have changed over time. If you think about J.D. Weatherspoon, 20 years ago, nearly 80% of their take was from the bar, and that's fallen now to 60%, and nearly 40% is from food. So the pub companies, like all companies, have got to change and adapt their offer to keep them, if you like, relevant. And what about digitalisation? Increasingly, when I talk to fund managers like yourself, we're thinking about the impact of digitalisation on all sectors. But is this one potentially that's immune from that? Because actually the joy of a pub is getting together with people, which is difficult to emulate in an entirely virtual reality. As we saw in lockdown, home consumption of alcohol obviously went up and in pubs it went down. But whereas you could have a drink and talk to your friends on Zoom while everyone else was having a drink, that might suffice for a bit. But as we know, nothing replaces that social interaction. And so to a degree, they are insulated from those digital trends. But even talking to some of the pub companies they've used this period to digitise their business as much as possible. What they've done is you can just like use a QR code to order from your table. They've managed to use that to put more staff onto bringing food and taking orders. You can free up staff to do other things. And so even pubs are digitising the bits they can digitise, but clearly the core offer is about people meeting each other. Now, you mentioned earlier the ones that will be the kind of the long term winners are those that are adapting and have introduced measures such as food or that digitalisation element. Are there large scale kind of brewers or pub owners that are doing this well? So JD Weatherspoon has been run very well over time. One that I think has been run better now than it has been in the past is Mitchell's and Butler's. That is got a large exposure to bigger out-of-town pubs where they've got gardens where 
that is kind of what people want. These are the sort of Harvester or a Miller and Carter, those type of brands. Um, you've also got companies like Young's and Fuller Smith and Turner. One of the things that has hobbled some of them in the past has been too much debt. If you have too much debt, you can't invest in the pubs, keep the fixtures and furnishings good. So the pandemic has forced some of them to raise new capital. And if you can get the balance sheets in a better position, then I think they can reinvest in the pubs, the, the quality of the buildings, to make sure that the environment's good. So I think that is a better and good change for some of them. Now, Ben, I can't let you go without mentioning your father again. We, this is obviously a podcast that goes out nationally and internationally, but HL is a Bristol-based business, and I believe there is a pub in Bristol named after your publican father, is there not? Yes, that's right. There, it has recently opened in a part of Bristol called Redland. It's called the Whitmore Tap. I haven't been there yet because of lockdown, but online I've read good reviews of it, so hopefully that will be a great success. The pleasures of pubs, perhaps not the greatest or most certain investment, but at least somewhere we can go and have some fun eventually. Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much. That was Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, talking to Ben Whitmore, Head of Strategy for Value Equities at Jupiter Asset Management. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. So, Susanna, I know you've been digging out some questions about pubs for me. I feel I should have done more hands-on research for this, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Okay, we'll start you off gently with a classic pub quiz question. What is the most popular pub name in Britain and why? I do know half of this, but for my sins, I have been to the odd pub quiz. So I know that the most popular pub name is the Red Lion, but I have no idea why. It seems like it should be something about coats of arms, unless you, I don't know, some sort of hideous zoo incident that I don't know about. You're right, it is the Red Lion. And one theory is that it dates back to James VI, who issued a decree that the Red Lion of Scotland should be on every important public building, which naturally included pubs. Royals tend to dominate pubs' names, of course. The Crown... Is the second most popular name, followed by the Royal Oak. So, next up, a survey by Accor asked people their favourite pub drink. Unsurprisingly, beer came out on top, but there were some really big differences right across the country, which is interesting. So, my home city of Bristol saw more cider drinks than beer drinkers, but can you name the city which listed Cocktail Sarah as its favourite pub drink? <laughs> oh, I haven't the slightest clue. Although, to be honest, Bristol being a city of cider drinks just doesn't come as a surprise at all. So let me guess. Um, let's say Londoners are the cocktail drinkers. No, it's Cardiff. So Londoners are actually beer drinkers. One of the really interesting things in the survey was the second most common answer overall was that people didn't drink alcohol. And in Birmingham, that was the most popular answer of all. Times are changing. So next, back in December 2020, the COVID rules decreed that you could only drink alcohol inside a pub if it was accompanied by a substantial meal. But in the ensuing confusion, which of the following was not confirmed by a cabinet minister as constituting a substantial meal? And this is my favourite question. Was it a scotch egg as a starter, a Cornish pasty with chips or salad served on a plate or cheese and wine? 
Who doesn't remember the Scotch egg debate? So I know that definitely was one of the options. And I know there was a lot of talk about it needing to have a plate. But, you know, I don't remember Cornish pasties coming up. And my husband's Cornish. And if Cornish pasties had been decreed as a substantial meal, I'm sure I would have eaten one in a pub. So I'm going to say the pasty. No, I'm sorry. You're right about the Scotch egg. That was confirmed by George Eustace, but the Cornish pasty was confirmed by Robert Jenrick before number 10 announced that ministers wouldn't be dragged into commentating on it anymore. But there was no mention of wine and cheese, although there has been plenty of mention about it more recently, of course. And finally, in the early days of the first lockdown, when everyone started doing virtual quizzes, there was an official new world record for the most viewers of a quiz on a YouTube live stream. So how many was it? I'll give you a clue. First of all, Sarah, it was a more than 100,000, believe it or not. I knew it was huge. I didn't know it was that big. Okay, let's say 150,000. Well, it was actually more than that. It was actually 182,513 households. And it was hosted by Jay Flynn, who started the virtual pub quiz, expecting about 30 people to join and ended up breaking a record big time. Even Dame Judi Dench joined in, apparently. Maybe I should have joined in and that would have improved my quizzing no end. Although, to be fair, I was knee deep in homeschooling at that point. Fair enough. I think that last answer was particularly tricky. So you win a packet of salt and vinegar crisps for your efforts. Okay, that's all from us this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 24th of January and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No views given on the present or future value or price of any investment, and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left for me is to thank our guests, David, the Lundy Yates family, Emma and Ben, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon, of course. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye. <laughs>